0: Hi, and welcome to Showcast, the podcast that explores the creative journey of concerts, films, theatre shows, and public art made with Notch. Join me, Kat Kemsley, as we hear from the people behind the pixels. Today, I'm speaking with screen producer, writer, and co-founder of the Framework Community, Laura Frank. In this episode, Laura shares her journey to becoming a screens producer and the tricks that she's learned along the way to optimize her workflow. We also discuss the challenges of the COVID pandemic and the benefits of building a strong, connected community. If you're interested in what a screen producer is, what they do, and how to get on the road to becoming one, then this is the episode for you. You're listening to the Notch Showcast. Today I'm joined by writer and screen producer Laura Frank. Hi Laura and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Kat, thanks for having me.
0: You've spent the last two years living a digital nomad lifestyle. Tell me how this has been affected by COVID and the events of the last year.
1: The pandemic has been so disruptive for everyone in our community and what happened for me is it it forced my husband and I to slow down in our travels quite a bit. We put ourselves uh, into an apartment in Kyoto, and Japan instituted a state of emergency, at which point we looked at our long-term travel capabilities and thought, well, if we if we look at this time effectively, this is an opportunity to really understand what our remote income potential is in our various careers, what my focus became at the time was, what does the community need? And prior to the pandemic, um, there was a small group of us looking at a way to start a community building tool for people who work in digital imagery for live
0: events. And that came into being framework. That came to be framework. So for
1: this Pandemic year. Frameworks mission then became understand how the community was trying to shift and keep working during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. what those solutions look like, and then when we do return, what what were people focused on? What were their goals? Their creative goals and um, personal goals when we came back? Just having this quiet moment to remind each other that we need to value our efforts properly. Mm. so that when that push comes back we aren't feeling like we need to continue to reduce our fees in order to get back to work
0: so ultimately a time of reflection yeah communication and education exactly you've said it much more succinctly than I have <laughs> <laughs> so Laura I, I got in touch with you after reading your book screens producing and media operations. So firstly, I want to say congratulations on writing a book. That's no easy feat. Thank you. There's a few things I'd like to talk about today. Obviously, the book, but as well, framework, which we touched on. But first, I'd like to ask you a few questions about how you got to where you are today. I don't mean South America on on this
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it is an so- interesting story. We can talk about that too. I kind of <laughs> bombarded the question about becoming a digital nomad with, with framework, but there's a whole other thread there.
0: I, I'm curious now, but I'm going to try and get through some of these questions about how you founded your company, Luminous Effects. So that was in 1999. But if we rewind a few years to your student days, mm-hmm. you studied a Bachelor of Art in the field of, of dance, theater, and physics. Yeah. So- what was your entry point into the industry? Did you start out as a performer?
1: I desperately wanted to have a modern dance company. My wish as a college student was to work in entertainment as a modern dance choreographer with a specialty in lighting my own pieces. Yeah. And when I found Moving Lights, I felt like, okay, well, this is my niche. This is where I can choreograph lights and be immersed in music and technology and the creative application of that mindset to moving lighting. Mm. And it'll feel like choreography, except I don't have to interact with dancers and (laughs) schedule people's um, call times. And, and, you know, it, it was just completely immersive and allowed me this creative outlet that I could just use anytime I wanted to. I was completely independent in that space. And it just seemed to feed all my interests. So, when when I made that move, because, you know, before that, sure, I was acting and working in theater all through college, um, but finding dance uh, was, was really it really touched me, and then then moving lighting from there was where I really felt mm-hmm. I could best apply all my interests.
0: So it's almost like dancing with lights. Yeah. What kind of got you into lighting? Was that from your theatre experience? Was that your first point of contact with the lighting desk and, and that world? I ended up pursuing lighting... Um, I mean, I immediately loved it when I learned
1: about it, but I was reviewing theater technology in general, or what degree I could get in theater that would get my parents to pay for college. <laughs> like, <laughs> because they... they Always resultsful. then. <laughs> I, they said, of course, they were willing to fund a private college education, assuming I would go mm-hmm. on to some graduate degree or professional career that would hopefully... Cover their requirements in old age, (laughs) financial requirements. Mm. And um, instead, I ran off to the theater and they were very concerned. But yeah, it was, Mm. I I went to a a lovely school that unfortunately no longer exists as of about a year ago now uh, Marlboro College in Marlboro, Vermont. And it was the kind of academic environment. First of all, it was incredibly small. There were only 200 students, and it was a self designed course of study. So I was able to really explore theater technology from the point of view of someone trying to get a physics degree at the same time. And that also propelled me further into lighting because I started studying the engineering of light emission, thin film optics, um, just anything that would allow me to apply that back to a creative Mm. outlet in the theater.
0: No, it's it's amazing having that kind of the opportunity to explore something in a broader sense Mm -hmm. I was I was the same actually I couldn't pick one thing to study so I ended up doing uh in the end like culture media communications and philosophy as a degree (laughs) but I mostly got a you know got a bachelor's in drinking (laughs) 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 Ultimately, but that is all those things (laughs) So, yeah, I guess i was I got a good training.
1: <laughs> we had a speaker come to Marlborough College, I think when I was a freshman or sophomore, and I'm spacing on his name unfortunately, but he came to give a lecture on uh greenhouse effect and climate science, so this would have been mm. in the mid nineties uh early nineties even um before anybody was talking about global warming and the first thing he said, and I will never forget this when he came out on stage, is he said, I'm so impressed with Marlborough College because life is interdisciplinary. That has always really stuck with me and informs a lot of what I do.
0: Once you finished uni, what happened after, after your degree?
1: I managed to get a job at Cornell University in their theatre department. There were uh, visiting tours, choreographers, theatre pieces that came through our theatres to present to students And I met a couple of lighting designers who were New York City-based. So after my year working in Cornell's Theater, when I made the choice to move to New York City, basically had two phone numbers of working professional lighting designers in New York, and one of them picked up the phone when I called and that resulted in kind of finding my way into the freelance circuit.
0: So what was the driving force behind establishing your company, Luminous FX?
1: The mechanics of being independent involved creating a company. And also it was at the point that my my role was definitely becoming more leadership-based and as a lighting programmer, It felt like that transitional point of being a master of all trades related to moving lighting to focusing on programming, it happened around the same time as forming the company. When I formed my company, there was also a point in the industry where moving lights, there was a lot of discussion about digital gobos. So there was this crossbreeding between lighting and video starting to occur, And I took a summer off to teach myself some of the basic language of graphics, video editing. I built a website for myself just to understand what was happening in that part of the world I didn't know as well.
0: The beginning of your book is focused on establishing this role of a screen producer, which Mm -hmm. is, I mean, I'm going to say it's a relatively new. Not less, Well, yeah, I'm going to say it's a relatively new role within evolving. the industry. Yeah. Evolving, yeah. A, a, an evolving role within the industry. And I think some people are unfamiliar with the term. So I'd like to ask you for your definition of a screen producer.
1: It, it is still challenging to easily quantify the role. Many of us use the title screens producer and still approach the role in different ways. For me, The screens producer is analogous to the projection designer from traditional theater. It is a leadership position that drives the creative, operational, and engineering requirements to achieve a live event. As a screens producer, I would run an operations team on site. So that's programming and content management. Loosely. Sometimes we We impacted the creative of content production and sometimes we owned more of the engineering, but primarily the screens producer drove the operations department and communicated our needs while listening to the needs of content and engineering for screens control.
0: Absolutely. And in your book, you set out a goal for screen producers as the role evolves. And I'm just going to quote you back to yourself, if you don't mind. Please. <laughs> um, which is that we as a team have someone who is a caretaker in leadership to ensure that everyone has the tools, time and production budget they need to get a project done. Yeah, that was well put, Laura. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, that is well put. And I should, I should write that down somewhere because I can rarely say it as succinctly as that. You did. That.
0: <laughs> So what was the first production that you went into with the title of Screens Producer? Do you remember? Was it kind of as clear cut as that?
1: No, it was not as clear cut as that. Uh, The evolution of the role from my point of view was a slow progression, As a media server programmer, my goal was just to make the show process as easy as possible. And as the screen systems got bigger, as I had to communicate with more content teams, the role got so fat, I realized as a programmer, the context switching of being in a technical perspective on production and trying to get the programming done was conflicting with the parallel demand of being a creative participant. So something had to shift. But before I could convince a producer to allow me to hire a bigger team, I had to make the process efficient enough to try and achieve what was being demanded of the role. So that led to what's in the textbook, which is a lot of that workflow discussion about how to make the content delivery workflow clearer and more successful. I wanted to eliminate the misunderstandings of what was required from the content teams as best I could.
0: Using real world experiences, like actual examples from shows that you've been on and and how that workflow has been born out of those experiences and live shows as well.
1: Absolutely. And each show was an opportunity for me to iterate both the technical aspects of the workflow and improve my communication with those partner teams and the content creators especially.
0: Is that why, you know, when I first mentioned the role of a screen producer, perhaps being a bit mysterious, is that why you said it's an evolving role? Because I guess as this industry evolves, so too does the role.
1: Exactly. And listen, the role of a screens producer pre-pandemic Uh, has shifted incredibly at this point. And now there's discussion of is a screens producer also the mixed reality producer or how do those two roles interact Mm. and who is answering to whom? And it continues to evolve and change as the industry changes. And, And with any technological industry, every day is different. So I see that role as often, as, as often an educator to client education is something I think I talk a lot in the textbook and it's certainly a mission of framework to not only help mm. practitioners but to do the work of client education so that as practitioners we have a better experience on a job site because we have more informed employers.
0: So someone coming into this world straight out of college and, you know, they have this dream of becoming a screens producer. How would you suggest that they gain the relevant experience? Like what department should they start out in?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I I feel like you have to follow what hooks you, right? So if you have a love for the technology, Possibly your pathway is either through programming or engineering the systems. And if you have a love for the, the creative application and designing the visuals around these tools, then possibly your work should be with a content creation team. Jumping into the role as a producer, I think, is being on the ground, seeing a lot of these teams do the work and do their piece of the work. I would want to be immersed. If I was starting now, I would want to be immersed mm. in as many different approaches to building screens for live events as possible.
0: So just getting out there then and and getting on shows essentially.
1: Yeah. I think programming is always a great way to understand if you have an appetite for the pressure you're going to be under on show site. I still see programming as a great entry point, but as a creative If you like creating content and you enjoy the application of the unique screen surfaces in live entertainment, then I would definitely be using, you know, many of the tools that people are exploring for either real-time content production or even old school After Effects.
0: And for you, at what point did it become apparent that knowledge of 3D software would be essential for your role?
1: I think the... the Light bulb moment for me is realizing how critical my being able to effectively communicate to the directors mm-hmm. and producers of an event I was working on about what their shows would look like. You know, I would see content go back and forth with the producers for approval that was just, you know, a flat plane of different rectangles that were supposed to represent different screens on a set. Meanwhile, the scenic designers Mm. are all working in Vectorworks or other 3D tools to build renderings. I felt like video should be approved and reviewed in the same way. So 3D to me became the tool needed to be able to share and describe what a show is going to look like ahead of time. I think I started teaching myself mm. Cinema 4D around 2011. And I mean, the wonderful thing about 3D software is, is it's very powerful. It's very visual. It, it clearly can describe a 3D environment.
0: So it's really kind of taking that level of communication from people who are thinking in 2D and kind of encouraging that to expand into thinking in, you know, a physical 3D space yeah, and then vice versa, like helping people who are thinking scenically, like this is a physical set and helping them think that this 2D video is part of that three dimensions. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask you a few questions about the book. Yeah. First of all, what inspired you to write the book? I was inspired to write the book after I started
1: giving presentations on the topic. I found myself in a position, having established my version of the role of screens producer, that I wanted to talk about process. And I think I had presented at LDI a couple of times and spoke to someone after one of those presentations who dropped the idea of a textbook and as I saw on the horizon, coming back full circle now to uh, the the beginning of my digital nomad lifestyle, I thought, well, this may be the perfect time.
0: Were these kind of seminars and presentations, were they the bare bones of what went into the book? Was this like your starting point?
1: Yes. In many of those presentations, the focus was what is a content delivery workflow and why I organized it the way I do, kind of breaking down the logic of who I was trying to support with this process, what problems I was trying to solve from a programmer's point of view, and the results I had seen in improving communication with both the content teams and the engineers. So it was really a discussion of the workflow and how I applied it when, you know, going show to show, Each scenic environment and screen environment was so vastly different.
0: What was the most difficult part of the production workflow to explain and document?
1: It always comes down to pixel density, I think, is the most challenging part um, because everyone wants Mm -hmm. content to visually look its best. And as screens get higher and higher in resolution, one of the bottlenecks became rendering, at least You know, three years ago, the bottleneck was rendering. It's a completely different equation now with with real-time concerns. But in the workflow, I needed to establish some parameters of what minimum resolution should be for a successful show. And there's a lot of debate about the best approach. But I tried to establish a formula and in the book, try to explain my approach to pixel density for content. Because I became a strong believer, at least for live events, that delivering for every available pixel in the screen was not necessary. It amplified the amount of gear you needed. It had a render time cost. It had a delivery cost because all the content companies were remote and wanted to deliver via the internet, which meant we had to pull that down and then distribute to our platforms. So I became a strong proponent of delivering to a certain visual standard that we defined, or my team defined by pixel density. And the resolution of the screen itself was often irrelevant. So the discussion of defining the best pixel density based on all those factors, I try to explain in that textbook, and I think it's the hardest concept to understand.
0: An element of mathematics in that as well, right? (laughs) Well, it's mathematics. It's it's human
1: vision. Like how many pixels can Mm -hmm. a person see? And what defines clarity and resolution for the human eye is also different than what defines that for a camera. And there's the budget consideration of how many signal paths and how much processing power can my show afford. So let's say I have a media server that has eight outputs. And for me to deliver every possible pixel in a set, I need 10 outputs is it worth the cost increase of doubling my system size for those two extra outputs? Or can I rely on other engineering components within the the system to upscale effectively and have the end result look as good?
0: Okay, if you had one tool that could solve one problem screen producers face every day, what would it be?
1: If I could have one tool that would solve screens producers problems, um, I, I should know the answer to this question, right? I... <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: hard to know what you want when it doesn't exist sometimes, but <laughs> right uh,
1: budget. Uh, I think, I think what so many teams need right now is budget to really advance what they're doing.
0: Okay, well, that's quite cool because you don't really need to invent that, do you? Like, <laughs> no. I, I mean, I I
1: feel like so many of the issues I hear teams facing right now come down to it's time or money, right? And, and so time is often defined by the production schedule. So you either need the, the right expertise or the, a couple more team members and the right gear. And what that comes back to for me is client education. If our clients better understand why we need those things, I think we would get them.
0: Okay. So perhaps some sort of, you know, telekinesis, Technology <laughs> that just automatically transmits all the inner workings and pitfalls that a project could face, and say, "This is why we need what we need."
1: <laughs> My joke right now to producers: It's when if I gave them wood and nails and a hammer, they could build a rudimentary table. But if I gave them a computer and asked me to build the ta- same table in three D, most of them wouldn't know where mm. to start. I want most right now to somehow make the world we exist in and the tools we use more accessible to the people we use those tools for so that they have better understanding and and appreciation for the digital labor costs involved. And that's not as sexy as a souped-up graphics processor or some new software tool, but I think it is critical for our community for the future. We've all seen what the VFX industry has gone through in this race to the bottom of cost. And I I want better for our community.
0: If the pandemic has taught you one positive thing about your creative process, what is it?
1: It's taught me how critical um, our companionship is Mm -hmm. because we thrive as a community working together and watching people trying to achieve from their home office It's not the same experience because we don't have that immediacy of of breathing the same air and getting that rush of adrenaline off of working so hard together and pushing each other to Mm. achieve and and create magic for other people to witness. Um, I think we're all really missing that.
0: Absolutely. You streamed a session on Framework in June last year called A Culture of Wellness, which you said was inspired by your research for the book. Because when you reached out to a few industry professionals, a lot of people kind of wanted to talk about this topic of wellness, of kind of taking a good work-life balance. And in the session, you spoke about the potential of a white paper or a set of guidelines for people working in within the live events industry. I'm wondering if this session has sparked any further engagement on the topic. Yeah, I think
1: uh, this year has been so hard on so many people, especially the mm-hmm. communities and teams working in mixed reality productions. By the end of last year, people just sounded broken. You know, it just, they were being pushed mm-hmm. so hard by client expectations. and they were exhausted. And I think a lot of teams are still exhausted, and they're not seeing the benefit of their hard work. And it is so critical we find a way back to that conversation. But I think everyone has been so heads down working hard and a little bit overwhelmed that a lot of that discussion has been pushed aside. It is... It is something I I definitely want to move forward on, but I feel very challenged to understand how.
0: It's not an easy fix, is it? I guess at least coming back to Framework, which is a community you co-founded with a few other notable names in the live events industry, including our own Luke Malcolm. This space is at least an opportunity to talk about these topics and connect with other people in the industry and hopefully open a few channels of communication so that you know at, at least these conversations are being had so i know we spoke a bit about it earlier but i'd just like to ask you kind of what is framework
1: framework is a community organization for people who work with screens and live events and mm-hmm. i i want framework to to somehow involve more people than that initial definition mm-hmm. because you know when when you talk about people who are screens and live events that impacts people who engineer those screens people who create content for those screens and everyone in between but i think the community is much larger and what we've seen in the rise of virtual production is just how large that community can be and how much we can learn from each other so i think about people who come from the gaming world how the film community approaches virtual production i think we can all learn a great deal from each other and improve the quality mm. and process of our work. So I, I have big goals for Framework in the future, but initially Framework was founded to su- support and improve communication for all the people who impact screen and live events.
0: And you've had a few virtual conferences last year. We've hosted three events at this point and
1: are planning another one for the end of this month.
0: Oh, fantastic. And can you tell us anything that you've got coming up in this next framework event? Um, I think the focus, and this is
1: still in development, the focus of this next framework event Mm -hmm. is kind of this transition point. I think we all see of the potential of live events and audiences coming back and how the intersection Mm -hmm. of what we've learned from a year working in virtual production will integrate with that. So I'm hoping to to host a more social session where people can have their own breakout groups and talk about their particular concerns and capture some of that for the direction of a hopefully future live event.
0: So talking about the future of live events, but also kind of looking into the future of hosting a real live event framework as well. And aside from what you've got going on with framework, have you got anything else in the pipeline that you're working towards?
1: I am currently working on another textbook about real-time technologies that I should start work on in the next month. You know, my first textbook was about 20 years of production experience. And now I want to write about a topic Mm -hmm. that continues to change form every day. And so this textbook is going to be a bit mm. of a challenge to our Yeah.
0: I mean, you definitely have a busy few months to few years coming up with that <laughs> one. <laughs> Laura, so much fun talking today. Thank you so much for everything you've shared. Like It really has been a blast talking to you. And thank you so much for taking the time out.
1: Thanks, Kat. It's been great talking with you.
0: Bye. You can find out more on Framework and their upcoming events by heading over to their website, framework-community.com or by following them on Instagram at Twitter at framework underscore or or on Facebook at Framework Community. You can also read their articles on Medium at frame-work. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, let us know on Twitter or Facebook at NotchVFX. And don't forget, if you'd like your work featured on our Instagram feed at NotchVFX, Use the hashtag MadeWithNotch. Next week, we hear from the creative directors of award winning video design and production studio, Finn Ross and Adam Young. Tune in to hear more about their initiative to help young creatives and graduates get into the industry. Today's episode was mastered by Tor Oenz and produced by Ben Stams and myself, Kat Kemsley. Thanks for listening.